You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Hi, Governor Carter from Georgia. Running for president. I want to ask you to help me next year. In the beginning, Jimmy Carter's campaign was a lonely one. But through the months, more and more people recognized him as a new leader, a man who will change the way this country is run, a competent man who can make our government open and efficient, but above all, an understanding man, who can make ours a government of the people once again. Jimmy Carter, a leader for a change. I want to show you our Meet the Press Minute. It takes a look at the legacy of President Jimmy Carter, who is receiving hospice care at his home in Plains, Georgia. Over the course of 40 years, Carter appeared on this program 11 times. In December 1974, he joined us the week he announced his bid for the White House, to talk about why he wanted the nation's top job. I think we, we have a nation that is truly great, not that used to be great or someday will be great again, but one that has an innate uh, character about it that's not adequately recognized. A stability, a pride in its past, an economic strength that is presently uh, not recognized adequately by the people in this country and around the world. Also, I think there's a, there's a lack of purpose in our country's government now, which is much uh, more vulnerable than the people deserve. It's hard to detect what are our goals, what common purpose we work toward, what sort of sacrifices might be expected from the American people. And if I can exemplify the correction of some of the defects that have been brought in our government by politicians and not by the people and help to restore the greatness of this country, then I'd like to do it. Right now at 530, as former President Jimmy Carter spends his remaining time in home hospice care, we're looking back at his impact on Southern politics and his friendship with a former local congressman. News 13's Manny Martinez has this story. Some of the favorite pens, of course, were anything with the peanut. This one is um, uh, Jimmy Carter. Decades-old memorabilia brings back memories for Sally Howard. This campaign, I guess, is so special because it was the first really national and presidential campaign that I was involved with on that level. The Myrtle Beach Planning Commission member has been a lifelong Democratic activist and stumped for Jimmy Carter in the mid-70s. The 39th president, born and raised in Plains, Georgia, was a peanut farmer before serving as senator and then governor. Howard says Carter's presidency helped legitimize Southern politics. It was exciting, and he, of course, carried all these Southern states that normally would not vote for president, a Democratic president. Carter made campaign stops in our region, including the 1976 Southern 500 at Darlington, just months before his victory. Carter's first endorsement for president in the U.S. House came from former South Carolina 6th District Congressman John Jenneret. John Clark wrote a book with Jenneret about the congressman's years on Capitol Hill and says the two Southerners were friends. John campaigned for Carter both in South Carolina and outside South Carolina, and Carter had campaign for John. And here's News 13's Bob Juback with Jenneret in 2015, just before Carter's 91st birthday. Jenneret reflected on Carter's time in office. He was uh, looked upon at times as uh, not very, not the person that we should have in that position. But as time goes on, uh, he will be remembered as a great president and as a man of people and a man of faith. And Annette, at 98 years old, Carter's the longest living U.S. president. The Carter Center says the family appreciates the kind and thoughtful messages. Coming up next on News 13 at 6, more about Carter's time in office 
and the recognition it led to of Southerners in Washington. Live in the newsroom, Manny Martinez, News 13. from that and you get to Jimmy Carter and you have an interesting story about Jimmy Carter so you have such a vast vast experience I'm sitting here and I'm eating this delicious breakfast and at the same time said why am I eating this breakfast when John has such interesting (laughs) antidotes tell us tell tell us tell us us your Jimmy Carter story Jimmy Carter I uh, when I was I was had been in Congress and uh, Jimmy Carter uh, came to do a lunch for me in Florence, South Carolina, and he was—he had been the—he had been the head of the governor's conference before, and we had a lunch in in uh, Florence, and I put him in my little airplane, and we were flying to Florence from Florence to Myrtle Beach. We were going to have a dinner that night at, at Pine Lakes Country Club. And this is when he was running for president. Yeah, he was running for president, but no, he hadn't told anybody. This is a story part. When he came, when we got in the airplane with me and we got up in the air, he said, John, I'm going to tell you something I haven't told anybody except my family. He said, I'm going to run for president. And uh, we were at 3,000 feet, as I recall, at something about that that height. Then all of a sudden, uh, <laughs> I, I, I look around, I'm looking at him, and I'm, he's looking at me kind of strange, and I wonder why. And he said, John, John. We're low. We're going down. So I dropped about <laughs> I dropped about fifteen hundred feet <laughs> with him, with him camping. So, just with the shock of him telling you yeah, he was running for president. Yeah. So uh, he pulled me. I pulled back up, and everything was fine. But even to this day, when I run into him or he calls me or vice versa, he said, "What? Did you pull up? Did you pull up?" <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it was. But from that, uh, I, I, I led the, his, his uh, I was his first member of Congress to endorse Jimmy Carter, uh, became wow. one of his top people, and I had uh, absolute uh, wide open to the White House. I say that with great honor because he let, gave me do things and wanted me to have an office, but by, by legislative times, you cannot take an office there. In the White House, right. but uh, I, he was very nice to, to give me all kinds of things. And one time, I I voted against him, and uh, I don't know which of us cried the most, but it was a hard thing because he he wanted something, and I didn't think I, it would help us. So, but anyway, he's he's a great person, and uh, people now know more better than they did before what he really what he really did and how much he's helped. America, and I'm honored that I've had opportunity to, to work with him. We can choose to alleviate suffering. We can choose to work together for peace. And we will fight our wars against poverty, ignorance, and injustice. Our commitment to human rights must be absolute. The passion for freedom is on the rise. Growing up in Plains, Georgia, Jimmy Carter was truly a product of his parents. 
His mother represented a very tender heart. His father represented a very tough mind. You've got to have a tough mind and a tender heart. And I think Jimmy Carter was born that way. My father was uh, a dedicated, hardworking, down-to-earth farmer, and he was a strict uh, racial segregationist. My mother, on the other hand, believed just the opposite. She was a registered nurse, and she treated uh, black and white people exactly the same. This was a kind of torment or division in my life. All my neighbors, all my playmates, all my intimate companions were African-American kids. We went to separate schools, went to separate churches. So that's the way I grew up. Miss Judy Coleman was our superintendent, and she convinced me that I could do anything I wanted to. At that time, my only ambition was to go to the Naval Academy because I had a favorite uncle who was in the Navy. At age 17, Jimmy received his appointment to the Academy, becoming the first Carter to leave Georgia to pursue higher education. In 1945, on a trip home from the Academy, Jimmy ran into a friend of one of his sisters from Plains named Rosalind Smith. By the end of their first date, Carter was smitten. One year later, they were married. The highest ambition that a young naval officer could have was to go into the submarine force. And when I went to work for Rickover, he was extremely demanding on me. I soon learned that he would be the greatest influence on my life of any man except my own daddy, my own father. With a coveted position in the Navy, Lieutenant Carter's life course seemed set. But in 1953, Earl Carter was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. All the time I was there, there were streams of visitors who came to our house in Plains. And they would regale me with these accounts of the things that my daddy had done to shape their, improve their lives, they were totally secret. He came back and said, I could do more in Plains, Georgia, than I could to help people than I could ever do in the Navy. And to my utter amazement, I began to think that I should follow my father's footsteps rather than to continue with my Navy career. When I came home, I had no interest in politics. But the number one gubernatorial candidate, his slogan was, was he would hold up one finger and say, no, not one, promising that he would shut down all the public schools in Georgia if one black child entered a white classroom. And I decided that I would try to do what I could to prevent that happening. Carter carried his cause to the political stage and ran for state senate. When a local corrupt politician rigged the results, Carter refused to concede. This experience taught me a lot of things about politics and government. First of all, I, I saw the uh, horrible um, lack of, of honesty and integrity in the basic uh, election laws of my own state. I also saw that to challenge this status quo was possible if one was tenacious in trying to bring about a seminal change. Carter's pursuit for justice prevailed, and he took his seat in the Georgia State Senate. After two terms in the State Senate, Jimmy set his sights on the governorship. He lost his first bid in 1966, but came back fighting in 1970 and won. Jimmy Carter, 9,000 votes. Hal suit, 4,000 votes. On his first day in office, 
Governor Carter called upon all Georgians to choose a new direction. I say to you quite frankly that the time for racial discrimination is over. We had had the horrible, divisive Vietnam War. We had had all the scandals of Watergate. Well, I'm not a crook. I think who Jimmy Carter was and is sort of fit that thing that people were looking for. We always thought he could win. I mean, we never doubted it. And we all campaigned. Our whole family went in different directions. My name is Jimmy Carter, and I'm running for president. Jimmy Carter and incumbent Gerald Ford were in a close race up to the final days of the election. NBC News projects James Earl Carter of the state of Georgia elected the next president of the United States. On day one, the new president faced the ambitious promise he made on the campaign trail, setting America on a new course. Looming energy shortages confront the United States with a crisis as serious as war. We simply must balance our demand for energy with our rapidly shrinking resources. By acting now, we can control our future instead of letting the future control us. Nine members of OPEC have raised the price of their crude oil. No president has ever done more or worked harder to prepare this nation to face an energy crisis than he did. He left this country with a serious, substantive national energy policy. By the time we finished four years in office, America was using two million barrels of oil a day less than on the day we took office. President Carter set out to redefine America's role in the world. He established diplomatic relations with China, signed new Panama Canal treaties, and negotiated a new arms limitation treaty with the Soviet Union. To this mountaintop tomorrow will come Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat to try to reach across the years of misunderstanding and hatred that have divided their peoples and find some common ground of understanding. One of the most significant accomplishments of the Carter administration and President Carter personally was a treaty of peace between uh, Israel and, and Egypt. Carter came into the presidency convinced that we needed peace between Israel and her neighbors, and he wanted to lead in that effort. And um, he did it. Peace has come to Israel and to Egypt. Let there be no more war. Peace unto you. Shalom. Since 1978, no Israeli has killed any Egyptian and no Egyptian has killed any Israeli. And that's a significant record. The U.S. Embassy in Tehran has been invaded and occupied by Iranian students. People would say, why didn't your husband do something? And so I would come home and say, why don't you do something? He would say, okay, what you want me to do? Bomb the harbor and then have them take out one hostage every day and put him in front of a firing squad. He just resisted the pressure and did what he thought was right. 
We finally got every hostage home safely, and we did it without starting a war or using tactics that endangered the hostages. He was the president that reversed the steady decline in American defense budgets with steady, real growth in real dollars every single year that he was in office. 30,000 Russian combat troops have crossed into Afghanistan. In late 1979, in response to the invasion, President Carter increased defense spending faster still and persuaded European allies to do the same. To the Soviet Union, he issued a warning. An attempt by any outside force to gain control of the Persian Gulf region will be regarded as an assault on the vital interest of the United States of America. I thought that America should set the example for the whole world in protecting the very essence of human rights in every way. President Carter also called on Rosalind, his closest ally, to help spread his messages of human rights. He came in one day and said, I'd like for you to go to Latin America for me. Would you be willing to do that? And I, I, I jumped at the chance. When we travel in the world now, Jimmy is treated with great respect, and I think it goes back to his human rights policy when he was in the White House. People know that he cares about them. President Carter's legacy is peace with the world, and he left the presidency not only with peace but with the respect and admiration of the majority of the citizens on this planet. Well, when I was, I would say, involuntarily retired from the White House, four years earlier than I had anticipated, I wanted something else to occupy my time and to make my life interesting. Million refugees. I sat up in bed and said, I got an idea. We can have a little place in Atlanta, similar to Camp David, where people that have a conflict or a war ongoing or potential can come to us and we'll help negotiate a peace agreement. So that was the original thought. And so the Carter Center was born. Its mission, waging peace, fighting disease, building hope. Much of the Carter Center's early work was aimed at ensuring free and fair elections around the world. It is really exciting and wonderful to go and monitor an election. I remember when we went to Liberia, for instance, I decided to go down the line and ask them why they had stood in this misting rain all night. But when you'd say, and why are you going to vote? There's peace. And it does something to your soul <laughs> to be sure to be able to participate in something like that. Conflict resolution goes hand in hand with nurturing the growth of democracy. The Carter Center and President Carter himself have played a central role in resolving bitter divisions between and within nations. It's a fundamental tenet of the Carter Center. Peace and freedom thrive most in communities free from chronic illness. Since 1982, the Carter Center has been fighting a war against infectious diseases around the world. Well, this is a magic net. About three-fourths of our total budget and three-fourths of our personnel are devoted to addressing our so-called neglected tropical diseases. We know that mental illness is a disease as any other. It can be diagnosed, it can be treated, and almost everyone 
suffering from mental illness can be helped. Mrs. Carter's commitment to mental health issues, begun in the governor's mansion and continued in the White House, have also found a home in the Carter Center. So she's become the world champion of uh, mental health. If the Carter Center had not done anything except uh, provide a foundation for Rosen's mental health program, it would have been worthwhile. Jimmy and Rosalind Carter have done more good things for more people and more places than any other couple on the face of the earth. Jimmy Carter is this year's winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. The former president received the word... My name's Jimmy. Jimmy and Sadia. In the presidency, he got a sense of the fact that the world can be changed. And it doesn't take a government to change it. It can be changed one person at a time, one disease at a time, building one house at a time. He's led by something within, and he follows it wherever it leads. And it's not a matter of it being easy or successful. It just needs to be done. And if nobody else will do it, he'll try. God gives us a capacity for choice. We can choose to alleviate suffering. We can choose to work together for peace. We can make these changes. And we must. your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome to this edition of John Jenrette, our Congressman, and and Jimmy Carter. And this is the first edition where we're going to introduce President Jimmy Carter to you because Jimmy Carter came out of nowhere to get himself elected President of the United States. He'd been a, the governor of Georgia, and uh, he you know, was this outsider. I promise I'll never tell you a lie. He comes in you know, in that position, which is, was a strong one in 1976 because of because of, unfortunately, Vietnam and Watergate, 
had uh, damaged the credibility of the presidency in the eyes of the public. At that time, no one knew about all the alleged prosecutorial misconduct that had been done to Richard Nixon that we discussed in our other series. And so, you know, all that was unknown at the time that Richard Nixon was actually a much more honest and honorable guy than he was being, uh, that anybody believed in 1974, five and six. And so um, it was a different world and a different atmosphere. As Jimmy Carter comes along out of nowhere and takes advantage of it, and the very first member of Congress to endorse Jimmy Carter was John Jenrette. And they were two Southerners, two outsiders who had come, you know, kind of out of nowhere to, to get themselves elected, though John Jenrette had, had a long career in the state legislature. Uh, both of them, uh, one John Jenrette defeated John McMillan. And, of course, Jimmy Carter was coming behind Lester Maddox, who could only serve one term. But both of them had these predecessors who had been virulently, you know, kind of anti-civil rights signers. of One of them was a signer of the Southern Manifesto. Both of them fought segregation. And, and in John McMillan's case, he had fought uh, the home rule in the city of Washington, D.C. And so African-Americans... Uh, saw both of these men as their friend. And I think they, this is just sort of an outsider looking at it, could see that there was a bonding uh, thing there between these two men who had stood up for African-Americans in their state and in their district and uh, had become champions of the civil rights movements and the change in race relations. And the African-American community embraced them. And I think they saw that in each other. As, and as you'll see, uh, they, you know, they were able to unseat two very powerful, in John McMillan's case, a very powerful figure. In Lester Maddox's case, he was going out of office, but Carter became sort of that uh, antithesis to him. Uh, even though Lester Maddox turned around and ran as lieutenant governor and got elected lieutenant governor because in Georgia he couldn't succeed himself. But uh, I thought, let, let me, let's, let's introduce you to John McMillan. Uh, some stories about him and, of course, Lester Maddox, the previous governor of the state of Georgia. Uh, looking at them retrospectively, uh, pretty outrageous figures. They were many autocrats within the chamber. Uh, who were John McMillan of South Carolina and F. Edward Hebert of Louisiana? Yeah, so McMillan was one of these very long-standing chairmen, uh, and he uh, was a as were a number of these old Southerners, they were uh, products of the segregated South, they were segregationists, and he had risen to become the chairman of the District of Columbia Committee, which in effect made him the mayor uh, of, of the District of Columbia. He, he controlled the government of the District of Columbia, and he certainly wasn't used to the residents of the city, uh, which did not have self-government at that time, uh, telling him how the city should be run. Um, so much so that uh, when the appointed mayor, not the elected mayor, but the appointed mayor, uh, which itself was a new position, uh, Walter Washington had the temerity to send a budget up to McMillan and say, this is how we think uh, the city should be run. McMillan responded by sending a truckload of watermelons to, um, to McMillan's house. McMillan, incidentally, was one of those people who had largely ignored the black vote because he didn't have to worry. There were only about 3% of the voters in his district who were able, uh, black voters who were able to vote. 
but by the early 1970s, uh, those that had swelled to maybe 30 percent of his of his electorate, and uh, he was he was defeated uh, in 1972 by John Genret, uh, who lost the general election. Enough of Macmillan's people went over to vote for the Republican uh, to to cross Genret the election. Genret comes back in 74, wins, and uh, with the black vote, and is able to become a member of the class of. Of, uh, of 1974. Lester Maddox ran a small cafeteria on what's now the Georgia Tech campus. And uh, Lester Maddox uh, was a ardent uh, supporter of the system of segregation. He was a segregationist, believed that he could run his business and serve uh, to whomever he wanted. And that's pretty well the way he ran that business until the Civil Rights Movement, and he began to be challenged about it. Folks came to, uh, to be admitted, and he resisted. He and others picked up some axe handles and ran folks off in front of cameras. He saw that desegregation was going to ruin his business, and so he was a vocal supporter of segregation and an opponent of the political leaders who were making accommodations. And when in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed and ratified, Maddox decided to close his cafeteria instead of observing the law. He had an interest in politics, and he ran for governor. He unexpectedly won the Democratic primary, to the surprise of, of many people. It obviously was a protest vote on the part of, of many white voters. When Lester Maddox became governor, he clearly was ready to assure that the state would remain as opposed to desegregation as possible. He surprised a few people by doing things that no one would expect somebody who had run black folks out of his restaurant with an axe handle would do. He appointed some black people to office, uh, to appointed office in Georgia. And that surprised a lot of folks. They thought he would try to maintain an all-white government. Governor Maddox did not do that. But he also did not welcome desegregation, and he resisted it as much as he could within the powers of his office. He also exhibited very little uh, sympathy and understanding of, uh, of the African-American community. For example, when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, he refused to lower the state flags in honor of his death. It was uh, clear with all of the changes that were taking place uh, in the public schools, in the universities, with the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, and the Fair Housing Act of 68, that was uh, much more difficult uh, to maintain. And so Lester Maddox, as governor, had to begin to make accommodations himself. We had a Georgia law at that time which said that no governor could succeed himself, so that you could have one term but couldn't run again next term. You had to wait at least four more years. Well, Governor Maddox decided he didn't want to wait four more years. He would just run for lieutenant governor. And the person who took office as governor was Jimmy Carter, who ran as a clear moderate. So Jimmy Carter, a moderate New South governor, and his lieutenant governor, with whom he had lots of conflicts during his term, was Lester Maddox, the governor who had run people out of his restaurant a few years earlier with an accent. It was a period of transition. 
as you can see, racism is is a big issue, and the change in race relations is a big issue. And both Jimmy Carter and John Jenrette come to symbolize that because they are responsible for the for two men who are not in power anymore: John McMillan, Lester Maddox, uh, and and now here is here is. You know, Jimmy Carter on the verge of the presidency and John Jenrette's already in Congress. And I thought, you know, to kind of understand what a big deal that is, because we live in a different world, even though I don't stand here and tell you that racism and race relations isn't, you know, isn't still a problem or isn't perfect today. It's a different world than it was in 1974 and 75. And, uh, and a different world than what Jimmy Carter grew up in and what John Jenrette grew up in. And, and it'd be interesting to hear them talk about their childhood uh, in the South, the Deep South, South Carolina and Georgia, and race relations. The, the, the fact that we had all communities, African Americans and all of the blacks at that time that, that came in, in, with us, and the thing that got me started in thought, thinking at one time was how in the world do those people that live right by us and come and can't, can't come in and have lunch? And that was all. I started that from a child. I said, what in the world? Can't my friend Jackie come in and have lunch with me? Anyway, the biggest time they got out was that uh, it was at 6 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, African, the uh, South, excuse me, Star State Salvation Army, the KKK, Ku Klux Klan, uh, would come in to, uh, to the Loris area and walk around and all to make sure that the right people got, up, got out of the city. And wow. uh, it was... Uh, uh, frightening. Was this a regular thing, or just certain times? Every every Saturday, every, every sat Saturday. every Saturday. And my dad was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, also. And uh, uh, mother and I really uh, were upset about that. Going back to the fact that the children that black that I had couldn't come in and, and have dinner with us. Certainly, they they were in in trouble otherwise, or possibly trouble. I don't mean I don't think anybody ever in injured, but I. Uh, I remember one of the great fun things on that. My mother and I both started talking about we don't like Daddy doing that. And so one the, the next day when they were getting ready to come out, uh, Mother ironed his white robe and everything and everything. I said, Mom, we got to quit you. All right, she, she went and got some scissors. And she started cutting the bottom of, of the, 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 the white thing about two inches apart, everything. She put it back up. <laughs> and he went to the meeting hall. Hall was about three blocks down the street, and they were getting ready to go to come to, to uptown. <laughs> and Daddy put on his thing and the flirts all around. <laughs> so they they called him all kind of words and wouldn't let him go. Obviously, he wouldn't go, but they wouldn't let him go that that night. So he came he came home and had a few words for us. Mom and I out out talked him, and uh, he never went back. And he was one of my best friends and in politics. He he was there, but that was a funny thing and a dangerous thing for me. I, I did not like that, and 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 uh, I thought that uh, that mom did the right thing for sure on that. Uh, so she took the, the scissors to the took the outfit. scissors to him, and and he looked like a a lady's dress or something. Yeah. I'm flurrying out and everything. They just laughed at him and ran him out. And he, and he quit. <laughs> yeah. It was a, a, a quiet, quiet town, and on Sunday, Saturday afternoons, it was a frightening event. But uh, we made it. And coming into town from out the country. Yeah, that's what the African Americans, when they were oh, coming in, the Ku Klux Klan there. And, uh, what, tell me about that. What would happen when they, 
when that plan came in on Saturday night? They would they would walk in the in the uh, northern side of what 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 uh, Loris is, and they would single out and uh, they would make a line and uh, they would kind of walk slowly to make sure that everybody moved and uh, and the people there basically were didn't you know, wasn't much not moving and. Sometimes, you know, they'd be finishing up buying their meat or whatever it was, and it was almost like fear so to, they were to get to get to get out. The, the little bit of money they'd had in the demand to make him some hot dogs or whatever it was, he didn't know if he was going to get hot dogs or not. He knew oh, yeah. he was going to get out of there before if he had to. So, uh, And that was uh, 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 an experience that uh, was devastating almost. Did you ever witness in, on occasions like that, any kind of violence? No, we hardly. I don't remember any violence. I remember. I remember some some people hollering at him and saying something, and they would run or make a step or two like they were going to do it. But I think uh, the, the, the leaders and all uh, just wanted to let them know that they were the boss. How many people are we talking about? Probably thirty, and that was a lot. And on sometimes on a funeral when some of them died or something, you could have another ten or fifteen or so. It would be. It was it's thirty nine. Loris was a pretty doggone yeah, good bit. It was whole lot. whole block almost, and uh, they just could not stay. I mean, and uh, sometimes they'd be an hour late. I.e., the, the KKK would be an hour late or something, just to just to kind of irritate them because they would have to sit there not knowing what whether they could go do something else or not. Right. And uh, few, very few, had automobiles, uh, uh, and uh, they lived uh, not very far away because that's. All they had, we had. The Loris was not a uh, not an outstanding town as far as culture and stuff like that in the beginning. Well, when they came through and told them to leave, um, what would the people do? They would pick up, they pick up their clothes. And, I mean, they pick up their crooks and go home. And was this just one night a week, just on Saturday, Saturday nights? Night, yeah. But the rest of the week, it didn't matter. I think. Uh, I think a couple of times that we've had, they had uh, when there was a. a Something that Joe, Bobby John hit somebody by mistake or something like that, and then uh, they went after Bobby John the next day to let him know. But I only saw that once or twice, and that was never with a big crew. It was a couple that just got drunk and okay. said they were going to get somebody. So, but but the other one now, it, it it was almost like uh, they were marching with like a military mm-hmm. going in. If they were drinking a lot, it was a little bit different, and uh, and the the leaders of the clan would would make try to make sure that the, the, those that were having beverages were held at the back because even they didn't want to because a lot of them were wealthy people in the area as far as wealth was concerned at that time and they would be there they'd have gone they'd have left their business an hour earlier and come back now the really business people were not they were there and and would let people in and that's what they had to make a living the Jewish company that was there. I mean, they would stay there no matter what and would take care of the people just as long as they could. And I I, uh, I learned a, a lot on when I was, a, uh, I had a job in a grocery store. And I remember until this day and uh, that they taught me how to put products up there and to make sure that you got the can so the fa- they can see the people. The people. And, and I, I've had two wives and neither one of them could do that. <laughs> You'd see that it'd be the back part of the, back part of the can if you were looking for peanut butter or something like that. You had, you had to look. I can't imagine why that certainly me every day because every time I go home, man, I, <laughs> well, I, better shut, I better shut up. I guess I better, I better shut up. up. 
When Jimmy Carter was growing up, segregation was the law of the land. That meant that African Americans and white citizens were not by law allowed to go to school together or to sit together at movies or on a train or on a bus. This was not just prejudice, this was by law discrimination. And that's how Jimmy Carter grew up. But he grew up in a community in archery where his best friends were African Americans. And the people he relied on were African Americans. My childhood world was really shaped by black women. I played with their children, often ate and slept in their homes, and later hunted, fished, plowed, and hoed with their husbands and children. I learned from them how to understand the natural world. In many ways, from birth to death, they were an integral part of our family. He had great respect for African Americans, and when he went to the Naval Academy, he found a different situation where African American students were allowed at the Naval Academy, and he became a friend of one of the first to enroll at the Naval Academy, a supporter of him. And then when he was on the ships, segregation was stopped, and all the naval vessels were integrated, and Jimmy Carter learned a different way of living. And when he came back to Plains, he had a different perspective, trying to bring African Americans more into the community. He wasn't a civil rights leader, but he was a supporter. When he was elected governor of Georgia, in his inaugural address, he said, that the time for racial discrimination is over. And he set an example as governor by appointing more African Americans and other minorities and women to office in Georgia than had ever been appointed before. In fact, more than the total had ever been before. So he was able to set an example and be admired by the African-American community in Georgia. When he decided to run for president, he was able to get the support of people like Andrew Young, who had been a civil rights leader along with Martin Luther King Jr. And he also was able to get Martin Luther King's father, Martin Luther King Sr., as a supporter and others from the civil rights movement. So while he wasn't known nationally, he was vouched for by some of the great leaders of the civil rights movement. And when he became president, he followed the same example that he had followed as governor and appointed a large number, uh, larger than ever before, uh, African-Americans and other minorities to office in the federal government. Best-selling author and journalist Jonathan Alter has a lesson for the times in his new book entitled His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life, published by Simon & Schuster, 
a part of Viacom CBS. Jimmy Carter turns 96 this week, and we tend to think we have a pretty good idea of who he is. Peanut Farmer and former governor of Georgia, who miraculously wins the presidency, but is saddled by a bad economy and the Iranian hostage crisis. Some of the Americans were blindfolded, including two Marines wearing camouflage fatigues. Then he gets swamped by Ronald Reagan. Well, there's never been a more humbling moment in my life. Afterwards, he builds houses for the poor, fights diseases with his wife, Rosalind, and wins the Nobel Peace Prize. This is incomplete, to put it mildly. Carter was politically inept, but a visionary, and he got much more done as president than people remember. President Carter today signed a bill adding almost one and a third million acres to the wilderness system. Especially on the environment. He even planned to tackle climate change in the early 1980s had he been reelected. But Jimmy Carter had an early chapter of his life he's not proud of, something we can all learn from in this time of racial reckoning. When Carter was in the Navy, he spurned his segregationist upbringing and supported integration. But when he returned to rural Georgia in the 1950s, he spent the next 18 years of his life ducking the civil rights movement. That's because he was politically ambitious and was worried about his business interests. Then, after he was elected governor in 1970, Carter found his voice, condemning racial discrimination and the Georgia criminal justice system. This continued as president, where he brought diversity to the federal government and globalized the civil rights movement with his human rights policy. Carter has essentially spent the second half of his life making up for what he did or actually didn't do in the first half. Look, we can't all be Jimmy Carter in what we do for humanity. But as we think how to do more in the struggle for racial justice, let's keep in mind that while it might be too late for today's victims, it's not for tomorrow's. Let's move from silence to commitment on one of the great moral challenges of our time. There were a lot of factors that led to Jimmy Carter getting elected president of the United States, and we've covered some of them, uh, uh, but Watergate being the big one. But... Gerald Ford put up one heck of a fight, as we as we covered in our Gerald Ford, Gerald Ford series, the 1976 election. He started out of that convention 33 points down and only lost by about a point or so uh, in the general election to Jimmy Carter. And uh, But it was a remarkable moment. And a real, as I've said in some of these other shows, I think the closing the door on one era, Vietnam, Watergate, the turmoil of the 60s, even though this is 1976 and the early 70s, Jimmy Carter is going to open the door to what I would call the Reagan era. And uh, Even though Ronald Reagan is only four, going to be four more years out, he's introduced on center stage in 76 in that primary. But it's a new era that's going to see the Cold War get a lot icier and then the Soviet Union collapse, and, and we'll see that into the Bush presidency. But this is that changing of the guard, that change of... of uh, of of atmosphere or whatever uh, that you can see sometimes in history when one era ends and another one begins. For myself and for our nation, I want to thank my predecessor for all he has done to heal our land.
In this outward and physical ceremony, we attest once again to the inner and spiritual strength of our nation. As my high school teacher, Miss Judy Coleman, used to say, we must adjust to changing times and still hold to unchanging principles. Here before me is a Bible used in the inauguration of our first president in 1789. And I have just taken the oath of office on the Bible my mother gave me just a few years ago, opened to a timeless admonition from the ancient prophet Micah. He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. This inauguration ceremony marks a new beginning, a new dedication within our government, and a new spirit among us all. A president may sense and proclaim that new spirit, but only a people can provide it. Two centuries ago, our nation's birth was a milestone in the long quest for freedom. But the bold and brilliant dream which excited the founders of this nation still awaits its consummation. I have no new dream to set forth today, but rather urge a fresh faith in the old dream. Ours was the first society openly to define itself in terms of both spirituality and human liberty. It is that unique self-definition which has given us an exceptional appeal, but it also imposes on us a special obligation to take on those moral duties which, when assumed, seem invariably to be in our own best interest. You have given me a great responsibility to stay close to you, to be worthy of you, and to exemplify what you are. Let us create together a new national spirit of unity and trust. Your strength can compensate for my weakness, and your wisdom can help to minimize my mistakes. Let us learn together and laugh together and work together and pray together, confident that in the end we will triumph together in the right. When uh, uh, I was the first member of Congress to, uh, to come out for Jimmy Carter, and uh, and uh, I, I was I, I got eighteen, I mean 
28 people from the Northeast to vote for Jimmy Carter when it was a, when it was a Northern guy against him. And and when uh, Jimmy Carter called me and said, John, uh, uh, who you want? Who I'll I'll take anybody you ask me to take to be to be in my cabinet. I have two people, but you can have number three. And uh, I said, well, let me see. I talked about it. So I called Dick. And I said, listen, man, you got to come up here. We got to see the president. And so we did and had lunch and everything just as sweet and nice as he, Carter could be and everything, anything he wanted to do. Just, I, and I said, Dick, the first four members get airplanes. Now, don't, you've got, it's only two. You, we got, there are two airplanes left. Don't you leave here without getting us an airplane. <laughs> don't, don't you leave. The position carries an airplane with it. That's right. And I said, now, don't you do that. And he comes back, Carter came back in and he said, well, Dick, what, uh, Dick, John, what is what is what is your your friend, your cousin want? I said, well, I, well, let him tell you. He said, uh, Dick said, you know, Mr. President said, um, I like historical things, so I want to be Secretary of Historical Historical <laughs> Historical. What, what, what is it last called? Preservation. Yeah, historical preservation. I could have kicked him four times, four times. I couldn't do a move, couldn't do a thing. Carter said, you, you got it, John. He, look, he's going to be a great man. He's going to put things all over the United States. He had he did these little round things, you know. He goes up there. Dick Jenrette did that. No airplane. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.